This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. Let's do it. I'm rolling on my end because I'm sinking today and you look like you're where you need to be. Let's do the show. All right. Hello, everybody. I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. I'm Kyle Rizal. This is, of course, What Do You Want to Know Wednesday. We answer your questions that you want answers to. If you've got a question about the economy or business or tech, send it our way. We're at makemesmart at marketplace.org, or you can leave us a voicemail, 508-UB-SMART. Our first question today comes from Frank in Massachusetts, who writes... Can you explain why the market appeared to be cranky after the better than expected jobs report? Mm. I thought more jobs are always a good thing. Kai, you talked about this on the show. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. All right. So more jobs are always a good thing in the very uh, important and critical how people are feeling and doing and being able to spend money in this economy, right? That is, it is hugely important. But what the stock market cares about most right now, and arguably all the time, but right now certainly, is what Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve think about the labor market. And Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve think the labor market is too hot, that there are too many um, open jobs for too many people. And when you have a jobs report come in, like the November report came in last Friday with 263,000 new jobs, that was too much for the Fed. Okay? And... Well, actually, it was too much for Wall Street, too, but we'll get to the Mm. Fed in a minute. It was too much for Wall Street. And so Wall Street said to itself, oh, man, this means the Fed's going to keep on raising rates. Now, the Fed meets next Tuesday and Wednesday, 13th and 14th. And I will bet you money that Jay Powell in there and some point in that meeting will say, yes, the labor market is too darn hot. And we're worried about that. And that is why price stability is out of whack. Price stability is the way the Fed talks about inflation. So. Wall Street saw the good jobs number, said, oh, my God, Jay Powell is going to keep raising rates. And thus, the markets were cranky. That's the, that's, that's the nutshell. Really. I mean, this, I can very much imagine, like, this narrative of, like, why is Wall Street, you know, which people associate with wealth and people who are not necessarily connected to our everyday existence, mad mm-hmm. that people are getting jobs? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know. Well, and and so so number one, yes. Number two, you could also make a case that oh my God, why is the Federal Reserve more worried about Wall Street than mm. uh, people on Main Street, right? And here's why the Fed pays attention to the market. What the Fed is trying to do when it raises interest rates, and I'm getting a little esoteric here, but bear with me. What mm. the Fed is trying to do when it raises interest rates, it's trying to do something called tightening financial conditions, right? It wants. The general market for money in this economy, because let's remember, that's what the Fed's all about, right? The price of money. That's what interest rates are. It wants the general market for money in this economy to become tighter. And when the stock market falls, people naturally and, and, you know, people, people, but also company people stop spending as much money as they used to. And that's what the Fed wants to happen. They want to tighten those financial conditions. And so they're not upset about a falling market. Hmm. Okay. So there you go. All right. That was a very thorough answer. Uh, Timothy, in Pe- yeah. Timothy in Pennsylvania. He's got a question about SPACs, if you remember those. Now that hmm. some time has passed since the SPAC craze, has anyone done a follow-up on how those companies have performed since going public? 
in fact, people have. Uh, but just a reminder as to what a SPAC is, it's a special purpose acquisition company, which is basically a shell company that is solely created just to raise money from investors and then look for and acquire a private company, basically taking that company public, but without necessarily forcing that company to jump through all the hoops necessary if it were to do an IPO on its own. It's mm -hmm. an easier and faster way for companies to go public and there's less due diligence and all that jazz. So they were super trendy last year, but now not so much. And for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, uh, the SEC started paying a lot closer attention mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. SPACs because they sure. were starting to look real shady. And a lot of the SPACs listed during this boom were still looking for companies to buy to put under their umbrella. And so there's like a two-year limit for how long these things can sort of like hang out and like look for acquisitions. And so a lot of SPACs listed during the, that time period might not meet that two-year deadline. And at the same time, with inflation that high, this high as it's been, it's just not attractive to investors anymore. This idea that we're going to be like, oh, okay, I'm just going to throw money at you in hopes that you find a company that looks good enough to get people to buy it on the market when it when our SPAC launches, like the buzz around it is enough to just get mm. people to buy on, which is an easy thing to do when interest rates are low and there's not really many places in the economy to get a high return on investment. And so people were a lot more willing to take, you know, risk and and throw money at things that were not necessarily a sure thing. Um, but that's just not the conditions that we're in anymore. Okay, so to the actual uh, question that Timothy had about how they're performing. So uh, we reached out to a couple of SPAC experts, including Dr. Michael Orogi from NYU Law and Dr. Michael Klossner from Stanford Law to see how they're doing. And they've been researching SPACs that completed a merger during the second half of 2020 all the way up through 2021. And <laughs> will probably not surprise anybody, they found that while the stock market has suffered in general during this period, SPACs have done worse. According to their research, mm. the average SPAC has lost 62% of its initial value yeah. compared to traditional IPOs, which have just lost 36% of their value. Still not great, but, you know, very difference, big difference in the numbers there. Yeah. And they said that yeah, the totally. SPAC returns have continued to basically suck, um, which kind of matches their <laughs> historical <laughs> performance. <laughs> what? Yeah. How do you really I mean, feel about it? I, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, they have. They said the SPAC returns have continued to be quite poor. Which no, matches. no, you had, it, you had it right the yeah. first time. They've been terrible. They've been terrible. Yeah. Um, but that kind of lines up with how SPACs have performed over the last two decades. And, you know, there's a reason these things weren't super popular uh, for a really long time until we ended up in this incredibly low interest rate environment that we saw, uh, you know, in the last couple of years and a lot more sort of, how shall we, how shall we say it? Um, willingness to take risk in the markets mm. 
especially by a lot of um, retail consumers who, frankly, many of whom were led astray by people who shouldn't have been talking about this stuff anyway. So there's that. Exactly. That, that's, that's the key part. Well, one of the key parts of this is that they were people got bamboozled because it was like, oh, mm-hmm. free money. And it really wasn't. It really was. Yeah. So, and it's like, yeah. oh, this is the next big thing. Join this SPAC. And sometimes if you right. throw acronyms right. out there, it makes things sound way more interesting and important and legit than they are. And and like, mm-hmm. look, SPACs mm-hmm. are a legit thing. But just because it sounds financy doesn't necessarily mean it's a good investment. Exactly. That's exactly right. All right. Next up, we've got a question from Aaron for you, Kai, and it's about your new electric vehicle. Here's the email. Mm -hmm. You mentioned you got an electric car and implied this will save you money because it would be cheaper to charge your car rather than fill up a gas tank. Is this because you have solar panels? How does this compare to other large appliances people power in their homes? And before you answer this question, I have a question, too, because... Your last car was a minivan, and your new car mm-hmm. is not, correct? That is correct. That okay, is correct. so I'm, I'm curious, like, that factoring into everything. Okay, go. Oh, I, I don't know about, well, anyway, we'll get there. Okay, um, yeah. So, first of all, a lot of variables, right? A lot of variables. It's based on battery capacity, cost of electricity where I am, uh, when you charge, whether it's, you know, peak or non-peak. Also... Gas and electricity are both really expensive in California, so you got to take mm-hmm. that into um, uh, into calculation. But generally speaking, charging an EV at home is less expensive than filling up a gas-powered car. And uh, Courtney did the math on this one. So I'm getting an Ionic 5, going in about half an hour to go pick it up because uh, it takes like six weeks because there are supply chain problems. Mm. Getting an Ionic 5, I've got a 2011 uh, Toyota Sienna minivan. Uh, Courtney plugged all that information about both cars and the average price of electricity in California into LifeWire's EV savings calculator. And it says that if I drive 250 miles a week, which I don't actually, excuse me, I don't. So maybe I need to drive more. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But if I drive 250 miles a week, the calculator says I will save about $2,000 a year driving the EV instead of the minivan. Uh, And so that's a win. Also, it's better for the planet. That's There's that's that. why we're doing it, right? I mean, I mean, yes, I did spend one hundred eight dollars about a month ago filling up that car, and I was like, forget it, this is ridiculous. But it's just better for the planet. We got to get there. In terms of other household appliances, EVs use a lot. They've got huge batteries. They just take a lot of juice. Running a washing machine three times a week uses about uh, one hundred and forty kilowatt hours of energy per year. EV charger uses about forty nine hundred kilowatt hours um, of energy per year. Those are estimates uh, that Courtney got from um, Energy Sage. Um, so look, it's it's a it's a big deal, and you're you're making a transition, and there's a whole lot of stuff you have to learn about amps and kilowatt hours and all that stuff. Um, but did you have to learn all that stuff? To do. I have not yet learned it, but uh, I, I will. I'm working on it. I'm working oh, on it. Oh, okay. You know, so you can yeah. make us smart about amps and kilowatt hours yeah. in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah. <sighs> The, uh, you know, yes, it's better for the planet. And I saw this really interesting, funny, entertaining, whatever ad. And I can't even remember which EV it was for, but it was basically like somebody trying to get past their EV anxiety. And they, the ad oh, yeah. had them like on the therapist's couch. 
And the person was like, but I have range anxiety. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. therapist was like, do you drive more than 240 miles a day? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly. You know? and, and look, it was it was a little hurdle for, for me and my wife. We're like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And, you, and then you're like, Jesus Christ, shut up. You know, it's like most and there are of us more don't EV charging stations that coming much. online, <laughs> right? And and there, are, you know, there are maps in the car that will get you to the closest EV charger. I mean, it'll work out; we'll be fine. Yes, he says with fingers crossed. All right, next up, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Kimberly mentioned um, that her mom's at her mom's house Christmas decorations go up right after Halloween. Somebody called in about <laughs> <On> that. Halloween. <laughs> Hi, this yeah. is Patrick calling from Mill Valley, California, and I think it would be great to have a deep dive on Kimberly's mom and her decorating heard about the overlap of Halloween and Christmas, which fascinated me. Um, the trips to the uh, haunted house sounded interesting, too. Love to hear it. Oh, goodness. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, you take it from here, pal. All right. So uh, Courtney and Marissa actually called up my mom to talk about her decorating. And uh, here's what she said. I put up my Christmas decorations right after Halloween because I love Christmas for one, and I find it very frustrating to put decorations up for three weeks, the massive amount of decorating that I do. So I want to enjoy it thoroughly. All my neighbors do it now too. When they see me out there putting the yard, um, I have these gigantic yard um, fiber optic ornaments in my front yard as well the next day they're they're out there putting their stuff out so now they're trying to keep up with me so it's pretty cool (laughs) so let me explain the scale of decorations that she's talking about when she says giant fiber optic ornaments these things are like three feet tall some of them like they're, they're ornaments that are like the size of i don't know like what do you even compare it to? Like, and just like a small fridge. Um, oh, and wow. they light up. And so I'm out there running extension cords and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. As in like, you can only carry them up one at a time from the basement. I would know because I carried up <laughs> all of them. <laughs> and, mm. uh, and they're very pretty, but it looks like someone scattered like giant, you know, size like for a giant Christmas ornaments mm-hmm. all over the lawn. Mm-hmm. And then there are two separate nativity scenes. There are garlands, there's poinsettias, there's knickknacks, the bathrooms get decorated, the living room gets decorated, there's stuff that goes in the kitchen, there's stuff that goes in the front hallway, there's like little accents that go in the hallway. It's a lot of stuff. And so she wants it. To last the season, so, uh, so there yeah. you know. Uh, that, that's fair. I, I do have a logistics question. You said it, you you carried it all up from the basement, so she keeps all, this all in the basement. She doesn't have like a separate storage locker for it all. Uh, yes. So she keeps it in the basement. She has a ranch, and so she keeps it in the basement. Although we just had a discussion about whether she should be keeping them in the garage moving forward. I'm not sure, um, but. Uh-huh. Yeah, because like the the yeah. navigating these giant ornaments around the like bend uh, in the totally. staircase was something. Totally. Um, yes. So, who knows? We'll we'll I we'll see that. what her storage strategy is uh, in the in the coming year when she puts them away. She's typically pretty strict about getting them back in after Christmas. It's the before Christmas thing that's uh, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. early lead up. <laughs> <It's fun. laughs> Have you all put up your decorations yet? 
So the outside decorations are up, and then we're waiting until the 15th when the three boys are home, and then we're doing everything on the 15th. So we'll have, we'll have a good, you know, 10-day run before Christmas, and then uh, the 2nd of January, everything comes down. That's my heart and festival. Time to move on. Oh, right. wow. So that's just like two weeks of decorations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, usually we do it a little earlier, but but I think consensus was that we would wait till the three boys got home from from college. Oh, that's so, nice. Yeah, I yeah. Uh, I put up my tree with a friend over the weekend, and I've got my garland up, and I've got a few more decorations to put up. I mean, it's it's like a one bedroom apartment, so there's only so much you can do. Um, yeah. But for happy hour on Friday when we have our holiday party, I hope everybody will tell us about your decorations. And, uh, oh, if you have any um, holiday-themed cocktails you want me to try out, I'm, I am actively soliciting recipes. And remember, I don't like gin. Gin there is the go. devil. Okay. That is it for us today. And on this What Do You Want to Know Wednesday, we'll be back tomorrow for your Make Me Smart. We'll have some news fixes and a smiley. And, again, don't forget our holiday edition of Economics on Tap this Friday. We will be live streaming on YouTube starting at 6.30 p.m. Eastern, 3.30 p.m. Pacific. And if you've got um, a holiday beer for Kai to try that's not oh, too yeah. far outside his wheelhouse, you know, never hurts to, <laughs> to do that. You know, I, I believe that, you know. I, I just, I, I know that you like to, like, keep things simple. I, and I, I want to make sure that, that you have, like, things that. that you actually like. Okay, there we go. Send him, send him our way. simple man. Send them our way. You can do that at makemesmartatmarketplace.org or you can leave us a voicemail. 508-UB-SMART is how you do that. It sounds like I'm trolling you, but I'm not, I swear. No, you're not. I know. I know you're not. Make Me Smart is produced by Marissa Cabrera and Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's show was engineered by Jake Cherry, Ben Tolliday, and Daniel Ramirez. Composed our theme music. Bridger Bodner is working on Million Bazillion, or so we think. Francesca Levy is the executive director of the. I'm just saying. I, you know, I believe. Show me an I episode, believe. Bridget. Show me an episode. That's all I'm saying. Of course, the last time I made fun of her on here, by the way, she was actually listening, and so she hit me up on Slack, and she was like, I'm right here. So. It's like, I can hear you, Kai. I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm sorry, I'm just checking my Slack now. Ha! Got away with it. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy.